Aaron, Dr. Hines, do you think that Harry Brightmore on the start line was having to shuffle around uncomfortably because the foliage on his gentleman garden got slightly caught up in his lycra all-in-one? Having talked to Harry, I think that Harry was smooth and groomed on the start line. Can you think of any companies out there that might help other rowers be as smooth and groomed as Harry Brightmore? Well, I, I don't like to bring it up, Lewin, because you know that I'm not that commercially minded, just being a rapacious northerner. But there's a company called Manscaped, and they make some fantastic products for tweezing and tweaking and shaving. They do indeed. They, in fact, will trim the foliage on your gentleman garden, meaning that your gentleman vegetables will swing smooth and easy. And Aaron, this is a damned important thing in the modern sport of rowing. So I'd just like to remind all our listeners and their wives and girlfriends that until November the 12th, you can use the code BROKENORS, or one word, no capitals. You can use the code BROKENORS to get 20% off at uk.manscaped.com. Go for it. We are literally about as slick as a car crash, but never mind. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the latest episode of Broken Oars Indoors. Now, at this point, I would normally say, Aaron, who have we got on today? But I'm not going to do that because I'm going to take particular pleasure in announcing that we have the returning conqueror, Mr. Harry Brightmore, world champion Cox of the Great Britain men's eight-man rowing shell. Harry, congratulations and welcome to the pod. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that, that's the first thing to say. You're, you're now world champion. Um, that, that can't just be, that can't just be another sort of like pot in the cardboard box in the attic, That that has to be quite a big one. Yeah. I mean, that, that is very special. Um, it's been a sort of culmination of many many years work and it's you know it, it's something that when I started rowing as like a J13 sitting around in a playboat and falling into the water uh it's you know it's something that you sort of watch on telly and you think oh that could that could never be me um but it, I've sort of just stuck at it year on year and every year's got a little bit closer to the goal and yeah to come away with a world championship goal is it's epic, yeah. <laughs> Have your feet actually touched the ground yet? Has it actually sunk in that you are now a world champion? It must, it must feel. Has it? Has has anything changed, or is it kind of occasional realizations? I'm a world champion. Uh, I'd. I have sort of yeah. I have sort of come back down to earth a little bit in the last couple of days. Um, I was chatting to uh, my dad the other day and I sort of likened it to um, like when you have a birthday and someone asks you, uh, you know, oh, do you, do you feel a year older? And it's like, well, 
no but i know that i am mm. <laughs> um so it's yeah it's i know that what we've done is pretty special but i think just being surrounded by people in the team who uh you know have eyes looking forward already it sort of keeps you quite grounded because we've you know there's obviously an, an eye on the paris olympics and we know that the task that we've set ourselves from now on having sort of set a standard it's going to be quite difficult from here on out to you know stay at the top uh, we've got a target on our backs so yeah i think it's obviously epic but we just can't rest on our laurels really so i think that's sort of started to get me a bit more grounded <laughs> redgrave used to have this thing that um you know world championships are like stepping stones to the olympics and i think tim foster and james crackle when they when they won their first one in the fall with him were like we're world champions and matt and steve were more like you know yeah and it's kind of we, it's almost taken as red obviously we don't take that as red anymore because there's been there's been a period of turbulence at, at gb rowing but is that mentality of like it's great it's nice but paris is the is you know we're stepping on towards paris is that still there that that kind of sense yeah absolutely um and i think it's it's we have Steve Trapmore as coach of R8 and obviously he he has gone through that sort of, you know, that sort of period with a lot of those guys and, you know, and his, his run up to Sydney maybe wasn't quite as um, smooth sailing from the outside as like Steve Redgrave. I think like he was up against a pretty hot USA all the way through up to the Olympics. Um, but I think the lessons that he gives us are, like do keep us all with our feet on the ground. Like he's, you know, never happy. Like, I mean, yeah, from the outside, you know, the eight has been winning everything all season and we'll have come off the water and Steve will have been like, yeah, that was good. But, you know, X, Y, Z, and we'll go back and we'll work on X, Y, Z. And it's sort of, we've never had, had the chance to just sit back and reflect. And I think we've got a bit of time to do that now, but I think already eyes are being sort of cast forward and I don't think anyone's particularly happy to settle for world championship gold just yet. Fair enough. Could I just ask, you, you mentioned the sort of like the messing around as a J13 in little playboats. Where was that? Was that just Chester or? Yeah. So I learned to row at the King's school Chester. Um, so we were on the River D there. It's a great stretch of water. Very long stretch as well. It's, you know, I think yeah. a, they used to have the junior trials there um, way back in the day. Uh, and they used to have like GB junior training camps up on the D as well um, quite a while back. Um, yeah, great stretch of water. I had a great coach called uh, Neville Orme, who he's retired since then. Uh, and a, a chap called Paul Townsend, who's now coaching over in Cambridge. Um, yeah, both of them are uh, not at the school anymore, but yeah, they really sort of set me on my path and made me fall in love with the sport. So just to kind of wind back, were you, what was your pathway into rowing? Were you kind of an, an all sports child growing up? Was it a sporty parent? Was it a, was it someone at school or what actually got you on the, on the pathway to rowing first? Uh, 
so yeah so my my dad's very sporty um he did a lot of football athletics uh rugby when he was at school um and sort of from a young age i got pretty stuck into football played a lot of football um played for school played for a club outside of school as well just like every waking minute i did football and in the summer i'd do athletics as well was fairly handy at running uh did a bit of triple jump for the school as well um but i think i got to about 12 13 14 and kids my age were starting to grow and i wasn't growing and it football got really really hard like one of my sort of bigger like skill sets of football when I was that age was I was really really quick and I was a lot quicker than my position and usually I wouldn't really have to get into much physical contact because I'd be able to just sort of nip people off the line and get ahead of them but as you know as is the way boys my age started getting taller filling out getting stronger getting quicker as the stakes got a bit higher I found it more and more difficult to sort of use that tactic and I just I ended up just getting muscled out of the sport and it was it was a bit of a sort of hard period because I you know I loved my football and I was sort of seemed to be just going down and down the ranks and it was really really difficult and I thought well you know what I'll just I'll just try and give something else a go and signed up for rowing team for uh, like a summer holiday camp um and yeah was mucking about in playboats playing in the water usually falling in um it was nice and warm in the summer so it wasn't too much of a problem um and the head of rowing at the time was saying you know i'm sure you're having fun but i think we can try and get you on board as a cox and and try and see if you're up for that and i i didn't really think much of it at the time because at, at that time i was thinking well this is you know just something to take my mind off ultimately trying to get back into football um so i started coxing at the start of the next term into like j14s and i actually i just ended up loving it, it I, I sort of likened it a bit to like a captain kind of role like on a, yeah. on a sports team and you know i quite enjoyed actually trying to rally the guys together set a common goal and, and try and work towards something bit of sort of problem solving um yeah and, and sort of just got into it through that and, and then i ended the next year for j15s i ended up actually just stopping football and just sticking with rowing fair enough okay. um right now the question we've got on our schedule is a slightly controversial one as a chester native do you consider yourself Northern and do other people around Chester consider you Northern? <laughs> um, I don't consider myself Northern, but I've now spent quite a lot of my adult life living in and around Oxford, Reading, Thames Valley. And I think everyone thinks that if you live above Birmingham, it's the North. So fair enough. Um, I think of Chester as the Midlands. Aaron, above Birmingham. 
the thing is, Harry, I, I'm a I'm a Northumbrian native, and I obviously, you know, um, lived in London and, and Manchester at, at various points. So I basically think anything that's south of Gateshead is a suburb of North London, um, and Chester <laughs> is. If you're if you're a Mancunian, you think of yourself as being norm uh, as northern, but Chester's kind of nice and middle class and kind of you know it's down south essentially. Let's let's be brutally honest. Um, <laughs> Loon and I wrote for, for Agecroft, so we know the 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 D quite well. So we, we yeah. because it was you know you you have the head and you also have Chester Sprints and Chester Regatta and 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 we were there as one of the. One of the hallmarks of the of the measures that we put on rowing is not how many world championships you've got, but asking, have you ever done run corn and was it in the rain? I have done run corn quite a few times, and I think I think there was one where it wasn't in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it always. And I don't, I don't know what it is, but the rain almost kind of kind of makes it. <laughs> Yes, it does. It's synonymous with Runcorn Head. <laughs> it's part of the magic. Do, it do is. You... No, no, I, I, I was just, I mean, okay, right. It's partly been an ongoing joke in the pod, but it's also like, I, I don't know, slightly like a serious question. I mean, is there something of like intrinsic value of being a rower who's grown up and like done those kind of, rounds of kind of local regional head races you've slogged through winter training um do, do you find it sort of gives you something of a connection to the sport i i would say absolutely yeah because i think um one thing i i've always sort of found throughout every level of doing the sport is that Ultimately, you know, you are just doing the same thing at every level. You, you're just you're just trying to go quickly. And like I've made so many acquaintances and, and actually lifelong friends from you know filling in for an eight that's racing at Agecroft Head and you know help. Like I, my dad rose and he has he picked it up after I started at school and he, so he rode for Royal Chester, who I'm sure you'll be uh, familiar with as big Agecroft rivals. Um, and yeah, so like, I mean, I would always fill in for like, and Cox vets crews and, you know, I do rowing in the dark with the lights on and all the stuff that, you know, everyone else in the country is doing it. I think to miss out on that, you don't really get the full experience of, you know, everything that rowing in this country has to offer. And I think I'm, I'm, I appreciate that I'm actually, very fortunate with you know that i've had that breadth of experience but it is it's also just really good fun like you know going out with the lights on and you can't even see the oars it's you know you don't need to be worrying about <laughs> technique or you just need to be worrying about not hitting the bank yeah. yeah and yeah it's just it's just good and you get that sense of community and then you know doing those sort of uh the the local regattas and the local heads where it's it's all volunteer run and everyone's there just to enjoy doing the sport and i think once you get above a certain point in the sport to like that elite level you, you do miss that it's it's not really the same you don't have that same sense of community you sort of lose that a little bit and it's it's all geared towards you know like absolute 
performance, which, you know, that that's obviously the way that it's it's got to be. But um, that's not to say that there is a lot of fun to be had and a lot of value in that sense of community with those local races. That's really, really good fun. Mm. That, that kind of brings us on to, I mean, we, we wholeheartedly agree, you know, it's yeah. part of the, it's part of the, um, the, the, you know, the grassroots and the lifeblood of the, the, of the sport. But was there a point as you progressed in the junior ranks, Harry, where you thought, actually, I, I'm going to be quite good at this. And then was that part of your thinking was rowing part of your thinking in, in, in going to university as a kind of, were you thinking in terms of pathway through? Um, I think so at, at junior level, um, I did, I did trial for juniors. I, I filled in for the final trials when I was in J16s. So it was sort of agreed that I wasn't going to be under any sort of like, I wasn't going to be up for selection of anything, but I think I just, I just went for the experience of it and I ended up ranking quite highly and I thought oh well actually like the, you know could could be on something here um so I did it tried again the next season and I got sort of slapped down a bit and, and fell off the uh, selection pathway from the Easter trials which is around sort of halfway through the, the season regatta season and that sort of knocked my confidence quite a bit um and later on that season i signed up to do the home internet well to trial for the home international regatta for wales um managed to get into that had a great time and that sort of like built me back up again and then i trialed again for my upper sixth year uh where i was a bit more successful and i went to the munich junior regatta after the easter trial and then ended up racing at the Coupe de Jeunesse in, uh, at the summer. And I think it's sort of, that was a bit of a defining point because actually having gone to the Munich junior regatta, uh, and then going to Coupe, I was really, really annoyed that I didn't make it to the world championships. Um, and I think from that point I was a bit like, right, well, I, I want to try and remedy that because I felt like I was good enough to do it. So choosing universities, my first choice was uh, University of London because that year they just won the Prince Albert Challenge Cup in the Cox Four. And um, that was, yeah, so, so I was quite keen on going there. And I actually, I did get in and I, I went for a couple of months, but I was didn't get any accommodation and it was very expensive. And I sort of, yeah, tried, I'd, tried to reapply to another college to see if I could get into some accommodation there, but it was, things just fell through. So I was kind of, uh, looking at my options and the Oxford Brooks coach got in contact with me and said that I could start a course there in the January. And I thought obviously at, at that time it wasn't quite the powerhouse that it was now. Um, but I sort of thought that it would, you know, it still be, actually really really good fun and it's it's quite close to everything and you know there's a lot of rowing going in the Tem- going on in the Thames Valley so I agreed to do that um and I was yeah again very lucky that that was happening at a time where things were really starting to snowball at Oxford Brooks and I think from there 
in my second year, I got picked to do under 23s. The year after that, um, we had a really strong Henley campaign that fell short and it it just it it just started happening that like year on year on year there would always be like a, an extra feather in my bow and it'd be an extra thing to work towards it was an extra rung up the ladder so I think it sort of came from that upper sixth point where I was actually really really disappointed about what happened at the final set of junior trials um, and then also you know looking back maybe I wouldn't be here if I'd stayed at University of London as well. You know, that's it's sort of quite funny, isn't it? Looking back at points in your life and you think, well, what would have happened if I'd done this or done that? And so, yeah, I think things have just fallen into place a little bit, but there's definitely a lot of hard work and determination from that point. Fair enough. Could I, could I just dive in? And, and, and this might be a slight tangent, um, Blue and, and Harry, as, as we come in, as we move really, forward. Really, a, a tangent, Aaron? Have you ever done one of those before? That's unusual for you. It's very rare for me. And I just want to pick up on a point that that Harry made, um, if that's okay. You talked about football, and I got the sense that it was really important to your sense of self-identity, and there was a real sense of disappointment um, when something that you, you, that, that you didn't quite make it as far as you wanted to with that. And when we talked to Dan Armstrong, who's uh, the coach at Tyne United and also at, at Durham, he talked about the way that in junior athletes, kind of your identity becomes wrapped up with what you with what you do. And rowing is a tribe. You know, we we tend to self-identify as 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 rowers once you're kind of in the sport. Um, was there that feeling with when you lost football? Did you feel like you'd lost a part of yourself? And did and did rowing kind of um, replace that and then become part of the identity and and that kind of sense of progressively building through the ranks from university of london and then oxford brooks and each year getting a little bit higher up the ladder that that kind of it's it's almost a part of your it's replacing something that you lost but it's something that's now intrinsic to your identity really identifying with it and with yourself um that's that's a really good question actually uh I, I occasionally do them, but it's not, it's you not can, very yeah. often. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to sort of like dig into myself to work that one out. I, I think um, stepping away from football to rowing, I don't think I lost any of my identity. With fo- I still follow football avidly. Um, might disappoint some people here, but I'm a pretty strong Liverpool fan. <laughs> oh well um, you and Dan Armstrong will get, will get on fine <laughs> um, so I mean I still followed football avidly I still went to games and stuff and I still I still had that love of football even when I wasn't playing it I think it was it was a bit of competitive fire I think it was more the case it was like coincidental that it came with football and I think I found that again with rowing and with being the the role of a cox. And, you know, I, at the time, like Stephen Gerrard, big hero of mine, and, you know, trying to sort of like watch him on the pitch. And, you know, I feel as though that kind of figure, that was sort of a bit of a figure of what I was trying to portray with 
my coxing and, and in rowing and you know someone who's sort of trusted and someone who calls the shots and someone who like not only just asks for things from people or gets things it's someone who tries to like lead from the front um and i think you know that that was i think that was the identity that i was trying to get my teeth sunk into and i think i refound that along the way with rowing so again was that is that like you mentioned this of like you, you saw yourself in coxing as like being the captain of a team yeah and i mean again it, it, it's you know i'm i'm sitting here and i'm wanting to ask like so you, you know you know when when you're on in the selection uh races for coupe or for um junior worlds or whatever it is what are you trying to do that's different to everyone else but it, it seems as though clearly part of it is an absolutely psychological thing and that you're trying to you know you, you you're trying to get eight guys these like eight walls of meat basically <laughs> you know even j18s these days are just massive but and bring them together as a unit um i mean is, is do you see that as like one of the big parts of your role as a cox 100% yeah i think it's you know sometimes it's it's not always what you say but how you say it it's a bit of a cliche but I, i've known so many coxes that i've met along the way who maybe actually haven't been you know the most technical or they haven't known tons about the sport but they have been phenomenal coxes because they they just have the gift of the gab they have this personality that just draws people in and people feed off them and it just changes their you know their their aura their atmosphere and it just brings the best out of people and i think you know there's there's definitely value in that with coxing um you know quite quite often i think having someone who knows all the answers and has the answer to every issue that crops up in a rowing boat but is very timid comes across as very unconfident will usually be outdone by someone who doesn't have a clue but is actually just really cocky and gets a firm grip of the crew gets them all together and just gets them doing one thing um so i think there's a yeah there is definitely something to be said for just that um you know getting all of those guys to do the same thing it's 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 a challenge and ignore the pain it's yeah. kind of uh, a force yeah. of personality thing it's it's a force of personality because um i mean i'm beginning to realize you know how well drilled we were at, at, at agecroft at the time we probably didn't realize um the benefit of what we were getting but we you know we were taught that our coxes were an, an, an intrinsic part of the crew and i think lou and i have probably both been at, at other clubs where coxes are kind of treated as add-ons and the the boat tries to run the cox but it was quite interesting to see people like you know maddie and lucy and valerie and people like that at at, at agecroft quite small ladies utterly dominating very very large men you know um mm -hmm. 
in that sense, uh, the cox is kind of part of your squad. Is it this as you move up through the levels? Because we, they, you know, the, the, our coxes were there when we trained. They're there when we raced. That we we socialized together. We did everything together. Is that is that the same at the elite level? Or are you are you moving between boats and 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 athletes, or or do you do you keep a distance so you keep that sense of personality controlling? You know, how do you kind of balance? being close to the guys, but being far enough away to be able to kind of direct them when you need to? Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any easy answer for that. It's, it's very much a middle ground. Um, mm. Weirdly, part of the sort of selection for coxing this year was um, a bit of an interview and they asked a very similar question where it's like, you know, do you, do you see the role of the cox as being part of the coaching team or part of the athletes and I think it's neither you know I think I completely agree with you that it's you know you're very much part of the athletes because there needs to be that element of trust you know when you're in the thick of a race and all the rows are going hard as nails you don't you don't want an outsider you want someone who's been there with you through it and you know you you trust the person in front of you pulling as hard as they can and trust the person behind you pulling as hard as they can and you want to make sure that the the cox is just as much a part of that they know the ins and outs of the boat and they know what your motivations are they know what you're afraid of and they know exactly how you tick as a person and i think there has to be an element of you know friendship maybe a bit of friendships but certainly strong camaraderie um and like an understanding of like peership there but at the same time you know you you can be very very helpful to the coach in a way that maybe the athletes can't you know think little things like a rower might have like a, a niggle in their rib and you know they might just brush it off with friends like oh you know i'm a little bit sort of sore today but they won't tell tell that to the coach because maybe they don't want to lose their seat or you know they think that they might get dropped for something and so you know that there's there's little strings to like both avenues that you really have to sort of dance a tightrope on um and i think yeah the the, the further you go down the road with coxing the more you sort of work out where you sort of need to sit um but it's, it's tough. It's, it's very much like a middleman job. Mm. So, I mean, as a cox, you're you're like you're putting yourself into the mind of the captain of the team. You're going to very much take responsibility, almost for everything that goes wrong. Share the credit for everything that goes right. That seems like that seems like a lot of pressure there, and. I mean, how how do you manage that side of things within yourself? Because, you know, physically, I imagine you're kind of putting yourself through the ringer to be a cox in the same way that, uh, well, in a, in a different way to the, the guys hauling on the oar. But ha- what do you do to sort of like, right, keep yourself centred, keep yourself balanced when you're you know in the run-up to things like the world championships and you're two years out um 
I think, yeah, there's a, a facet of it is a little bit of sports psychology, really. Um, you know, like I've, I've got to admit, being on the start line of the World Championships, I'm absolutely, like, I'm, I'm terrified. Like, I've, I'm still, I still get nervous. It doesn't matter if it's the World Championships or whether it's Chester Regatta. Like, I love that feeling of being on the start line and just having those little nerves of being like, oh, what's going to happen here? But I think um, one way that you've got to be quite strong and resilient as a Cox is that, you know, a, a lot of your outward actions and how you speak and how you move and how you hold yourself, that is something that will rub off on other people. So I think in, in a in a weird sort of way, trying to sort of like separate how you feel and how you act is, is quite a difficult thing to get right. And it's something that takes quite a bit of practice, but, you know, knowing full well that I'm nervous, I really, really hope that this next race is going to go well, doesn't impact on me being acting absolutely confident, being very clear with what I want and how I ask for it. Um, and I think that there's a, f a few little things that I do to help that, you know, just, just going over in my mind that you can only control what you can control. People will go as fast as they can go. Like it's, it, you, you can do nothing to any of the other boats. Um, all you can do is try and just concentrate on your boat and make that go well. And, you know, there's, there's lots of little snippets of sports psychology that do filter in, um, but ultimately it's the ability to act like you've got all of the cards because you know that the rowers are probably going to be quite nervous as well. So if you've, if you radiate that confidence, then there will be faith in you and trust in you that you can actually make the right call and you've got to trust yourself that you can make the right call. So there is, there's a lot of pressure there and yeah, it's learning how to deal with that pressure. So, so, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've just heard the first pitch for Harry Brightmore, CEO coaching um, <laughs> and executive management. I mean, is, is, uh, is, is, do you think that actually is? I mean, is that something you can teach people? Or, I mean, it, there's like, you seem like a really kind of confident, easygoing forward guy, but how much of how much of that have you learned to bring in and how much of it's like yeah i've been like this since i was six <laughs> uh i i personally know that it's very learned i'm actually quite introverted at the best of times i really like my own space don't like talking to people i'll just quite happily <laughs> shut myself in my room read a book play a game and that'll be me for the rest of the day um but when i come to rowing i, I know that i've sort of learn this role and I portray this role and, and I, I love doing that. It's, it's not like it's a, a, a chore or anything like that, but yeah, I, th I think, I think you can learn these things. Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, it, it, it takes quite a bit of processing and practicing going through those hard experiences um, to be able to sort of like work through the, the nitty gritty of those pressure points and how you can deal with them better um and obviously it's not something you can just fix overnight like you know if you're 
sort of scared of something or you get nervous about something quite easily, it's um, it obviously takes time to work through that. Um, but I think it's it's very doable. And I think once you start thinking in certain ways, the fear of what if does become a little bit lessened. Um, you know, if it, it sounds so silly when, when you say something like control the controllables, it's like, you know, if, if you're really scared that another boat is going to power ahead and when someone says to you, well, can you, can you stop them powering ahead? No, of course you can't. So like, why, why are you worried about it? It's, you know, it's, it's, there's, it's completely out of your hands and you, you there's obviously plenty of other stuff. I'm, I'm no sports psychologist by any stretch. I'm just trying to, <laughs> trying to piece it together on my, in my own mind. But, um, yeah, it's, it's all, some, sometimes things just click in place and you just think actually like, yeah, why, why does that bother me? It's, it's very weird, but you, you start to work these things out and it does, does make it seem clearer. So it's almost like, um, and this is probably the wrong way to phrase this, Harry, so please don't take it the wrong way. It's almost like a confidence trick. Your crew, your crew sees you acting confidently. Um, you're organized, you're together on the start line. You're being very direct with what you're asking from them. Um, and because you look confident and you're transmitting confidence and, and also competence, they go, oh, well, it's okay. You know, Harry, Harry's fine. So that helps them to then also feel confident and competent. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That That is exactly the end goal of what we're trying to get across. Yeah. So, um, and, 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 and this is a question based upon, you know, if you row with people for long enough, I mean, rowers as a tribe tend to be fairly opinionated, fairly strong-willed individuals, you know, everyone knows what's wrong with the boat and it's not them. It's someone in bows not tapping <laughs> down properly or whatever. Um, a lot of coxing is understanding what different athletes need at different points. You know, if, if you know, in hour eight, if Ben was having a bad day, he probably needed chocolate. I responded to being shouted at, you know, um, that kind of thing. How do you... How, do you look at the athletes that you're working with and go, right, he needs an arm around the shoulder. He needs to pick up the backside. He needs a pat on the back. Is there like a black book where you, where you, you, you kind of work out their psychology and then what you can do to engage with it? Yeah, no, yeah, completely. Um, you know, it's, it's quite funny actually, like the longer this conversation goes on, it's, it's like, you know, obviously coxing is a very rowing specific role, but there is probably a good two thirds of it, which, has nothing to do with rowing um, and everything to do with man management, organization, sports psychology, you know, all of these little facets to it. Um, yeah. like Over a, a year of rowing with a crew, a, a year plus actually, you know, so, some of the guys that were in our eight this season for world championships, I've lived with at uni. I've known for nearly 10 years you know, you, you know exactly what makes these guys sick and you can tell when they're nervous. You can tell when they're actually just being bloody annoying and actually do need to kick <laughs> up the backside. And, you know, if they're getting cocky, you can bring them back down to it. You know, you, you just, you, you're working through just normal relationships with your friends and your colleagues and, you know, you, you get to work people out and yeah, that's, that's a huge part of it. 
Um, and obviously you're, you're in a, a special position to act positively on that and, and try and really help people and get the best out of people. And quite often you find that when you're sensible with that and you use that responsibility properly, that people do end up confiding in you a bit more and trying to, you know, if they don't feel confident in saying something in the boat because, you know, they thought, oh, well, actually, I, I felt like this was happening today. They'll talk to me about it and and sort of have a conversation with me rather than trying to sort of pitch into the whole crew and risk being shot down or getting into an argument or anything. So you, you sort of like bouncing and feeding off each other all the time. Um, and yeah, you, you, you do un- unlock like a good, a good relationship with all of these guys when you, when you're spending so much time together. So yeah, you do, you, you work out how, how they all work. So in that, in that case, because a lot of, um, Cox's in boats, you tend to get a lot of technical calls. Would you almost say that there are, there are technical calls that you can make that will make a difference, but but also and especially in the heat of a of a of a race, it's almost the psychological calls that 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 make the difference too. Yeah, I think in in training, like the the, the technical calls are key. I, I I would say in in the racing, like as something's going drastically wrong in a Nate's race there's not a lot of time to sort of fix it and get it back it's I mean it is it is really like a drag race um so it's almost like I'd liken it to you practice perfecting this race plan time and time and time again and then when you get to the race it pretty much just goes in the blink of an eye um and you just try and execute the the plan as as well as you possibly can do think maybe in the small boats you get a little bit more room for tactics and people pace things quite differently um but yeah certainly for the for the racing it's more about the calls are geared around executing a plan um in terms of pacing in terms of you know just giving people information of where the other crews are where we are on the course, the, the time, you know, we're two minutes in, three minutes in kind of thing. Um, there will be some technical calls in there just as reminders, usually in the second half when people are getting pretty tired. But yeah, for, for that race, it will be generally executing a plan. In the training session, there's a lot more time and energy spent on trying to make those strokes really good. So that will sort of take up a lot more of the conversation. So, I mean, okay, to, to talk about the race itself, you know, because it was a pretty impressive one. Um, in in the final, I mean, like I said, I, I was just watching it back before, before we started the recording. Um, it seemed as though the GB boat had a much everybody else seemed as though they were just banging away at like 44 strokes a minute or something and you guys seem much much more relaxed it did seem kind of a little bit longer a little bit more fluid is that is that something that's been a a, a positive choice right you're going to row like this or was this just something that's come together from the eight guys there this is this is how we do it 
Yeah, I th- I, well, um, Paul Stannard, the head coach, said at the start of the year that you know that the length of strokes was going to be a priority. Um, so that's been you know on our mind for the whole season. You can see that across the board with all of the other British boats. Um, so yeah, that that hasn't just been a chance thing. Um, but I think for our race in particular, we we knew that we had a fast first 500 without having to take extra strokes. Um, and we always had this sort of philosophy of, you know, you, you will go quickest over 2K if you flat pace it. You know, going faster in that first 500 takes quite a bit more energy to do. Um, so we already knew that we could go out quite quickly at quite a sort of steady rating. So we thought, well, I mean, we know our speed. If people lead us, they lead us. But we're confident that actually this style of rowing will get us from A to B quicker. Um, so, yeah, w- watching back the race, I'm sure a lot of the other boats were probably thinking, right, well, let's you know try and blast out and see if we can get a nose ahead of the British. And I, I think for certainly for the first two minutes, I, I don't really remember looking out. I don't think I gave any calls about where we were on the other crews because actually it didn't. It was irrelevant. We were just straight on our pace, hold our pace. And actually, after about two minutes or so, when I did start sort of looking across and saying to the guys where we were, I think you know we were, we were a few seats up and we were looking quite composed and quite calm and there was plenty of space to go so yeah it's, it's it's weird how it's just it was it was just very very internal it was just co- we were just concentrating on us um it also seemed like it was i mean i'm i'm sort of like drilling down into like really i suppose advanced international stuff but it, it, it seemed very much like it was a very quick race everything was like about one, you know, it's one minute, 20, 500s the whole way down. I mean, that's, it, again, it didn't look as though there was a screaming tailwind. It just seemed like it was a nice lake on a nice day. And, but very much, it seems if you're racing in an eight now, you're looking at, you're looking at closer to a five minute race than a six minute race. Um, is, is that changing anything in the way that people prepare? Um, I think, I think it does change the way that people race and eight. Um, and I think not even being part of the great Britain, eight, I think that's something that we focused on heavily at Oxford Brooks and all of the really like top end dates that those guys have been churning out over the last few years. You know, we, we've had a, strong philosophy of you know trying to get to the thousand get to 1500 as fast as humanly possible and cling on for the rest of the way because i think one of the interesting thing with, with the eight compared to uh certainly the pair but also a little bit before is is the the more moving parts you've got um and the faster that the boat moves the 
the amount of effort to increase the speed when it's already going near top speed is massive. And if you're trying to organize that in the last 500, it's, it's, not, it's not impossible to do, but it makes it incredibly difficult. And you need to have prepared to be ready to, you know, it's, it's essentially like dropping your split on an ergo, like five splits. You need to be prepared for everybody in the boat to be ready to absolutely drop the hammer. And it doesn't, doesn't really work that way. It's very, very difficult to do. Whereas in the, in the pair, when it's just two of you, you get an, an immediate feedback as soon as one person starts trying harder. Obviously, that's doubled if both of you start trying harder. It's very, very easy to do. And because the boat is quite light, it jumps straight away. Yeah. As an eight is nearly 100 kilograms. You've got all the oars, which, you know, that's another few kilograms. You've got the weight of the cocks. It is a heavy thing that carries its momentum well, but doesn't accelerate fast. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's been the, the running joke that it's, it's over an, a number of decades now that usually the eight that gets to 500 first will win the race. And it doesn't always work like that, but it's quite often the case. You, you don't usually come through last place at 500 and then end up winning. Whereas you do get that in the pairs. Yeah. It's really hard to change speed in an eight once it's up and running because, because like you say, there's so many moving parts. This kind of flat pacing, we, we talked to Eric Murray uh, a little while ago and he talked about there was, a, there was a point where they used to get ahead and then look back on races and then they, they went for the flat pacing across, the, across you know, from zero to 2,000 metres. And our old coach, Peter Holmes, brother of the late Andy Holmes, used to say, look, the fastest way from A to B is, is as fast as you can possibly make it. If, if, you, if you need to rely on, on, on pushes and sprints, then you're probably not going hard enough. Is that a philosophy that has come out of technical and physiological talks with, with, with the team? Has this been decided as kind of a policy going forward? We're just going to be fast from A to B. If someone leads us at 500 we're confident that our over, our speed over the course is the one that's going to get us to the line first. Uh, I wouldn't say it's been like a, a policy that's been drummed into us. I, th I think we've just got a lot of quite sensible and race savvy athletes in the team. Um, and, and athletes that are, vitally confident in what they can produce in terms of their performance. Um, you know, like I think a, a lot of these guys know their bodies inside and out and they, they know exactly, you know, they wake up, their heart rates, this, they will be feeling a certain way. They will know pretty much down to a split or so what they'd be able to produce in terms of a performance on that day. And I think it's, um, it, it, it shows that there's a lot of like maturity of the guys that have come through at the moment that they are able to race that way because it's obviously you know it's, it's quite take, takes quite a lot to be able to just go out into a world championships final and say right well we're just you know if people lead us that's fine it's not a problem we're just going to do what we're going to do um, 
you know, you, I, I, you just, you we always sort of equate it back to if you were going to do a 2K on a rowing machine, you know, you wouldn't blast a 500 as quick as you possibly can to try and get ahead of someone else because you know that the uh, the, the next four or five minutes are probably going to be pretty <laughs> horrible. <laughs> um, and, okay, like, you know, in the eight, that there is that is part of the nature of the beast. Like everyone does try and get out quite fast and there is an element of, you need a lot of power to get the thing up and moving, but generally we're, we're, we're not trying to go to 500 any quicker than, you know, we think we need to. We're, we're actually, if anything, going into the world championships, we were trying to make our second 500 a bit quicker, but it's, you know, it's, yeah, I think it's just a lot of mature racers that know what they're capable of and, when it's coming down to those final few placings, you know, if you're not, if you're not sure where you're going to sit in the medals and you want to make sure that you get your best performance possible to get that extra 0.1 of a second, there's, you know, there's no point in trying to spend anything silly when you know exactly the way to get the most out of yourself. If that makes sense. It's usually it's a, a case of fear to try and exert yourself harder in a certain pace in the race. Fair enough. So, Harry, we, we said we'd uh, we'd do this um, a little bit earlier in the pod, but I, I we're kind of like, you know, about two-thirds of the way through. I just wanted to um, say, I believe a relative of yours is doing a little bit of uh, fundraising at the moment and possibly something you want to mention? Yeah, absolutely. So it's just a, a little shout out to my sister who is running the London Marathon tomorrow uh, and she's running for meningitis now uh, in memory of a friend of hers from uni who unfortunately passed away uh, from meningitis very suddenly. Um, but yeah, she's been training at like an absolute madman. She's been smashing out 20k runs more than i've been doing that's for sure she's absolutely nuts um but yeah she's got just giving page so if you search alice brightmore there's a little thumbnail for meningitis now london marathon so yeah if anyone feeling generous or you know inclined to give a bit towards meningitis then absolutely try and uh, give her a little bit of a donation and Hopefully she finishes the marathon. <laughs> I'm sure she will. Excellent. Um, we'll, yeah, we'll put the link up on our on our Twitter feed as well, and also on the on the episode, so that she has a little bit of uh, you know, if that helps bring some more pennies in, that would be great. Amazing. Thank you very much, guys. No, it's sure it's she appreciates our, that very much. A, a pleasure. Um, uh, as we as we were chatting about earlier, I mean, uh, we've been very grateful for um, at my club for online fundraising efforts, and we're uh, we're about to put that to good use, um, getting some trees cleared. Um, so, looking forward to the future, like like you said, um, you've got a lot of people with you know their eyes eyes on the next race, basically. Um, in in terms of kind of like the grand sweep sweep of modern British rowing, we obviously had a bit of a dip at Tokyo. I mean, are you just are you now just can, can you really take much from the from the World Championships in twenty twenty two? Saying what's going to happen in twenty twenty four, or is that just like right job done? let's let's start the next year 
I yeah, I don't I don't think there's loads to be sort of going off to predict what's going to happen in Paris. I think, you know, 2022 has been a great season for British rowing. Um, but it's, I, as far as we're concerned as athletes, obviously we look at it all quite brutally and we've pretty much got to draw a line under that. Um, you know, all the sort of previous form doesn't really matter now. We're going into a brand new season uh, and I think it's it's down to us to try and replicate what we've done this season. It, it, it'll be hard, and you know we've we've set a standard for the world, and I'm sure that the world will respond pretty viciously and come back at us fighting. Um, but you know we we do a hell of a lot of work on our own metrics. We've got all of our times all stored in databases and stuff. You know we we know the standard that we need to hit. So. You know, it's it's back to the drawing board and and trying to see if we can improve on the performances from this year. And when we spoke to Mark Davis, he he mentioned you know, um, I, j- just thinking about it, he 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 was uh, he, he was quite good good at coxing too. And um, yeah, so there, there's a future job for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, but. Yeah, he, he he mentioned there was like there was like a Paris simulator um, that you've got the rowing machines up in a kind of like big kind of IMAX of the Paris course. Is is that something that you've been having a go at? Is that kind of like mental visualization part of the toolkit? Uh, I I haven't I haven't had to go on that. I know that the Para team have been to the Para course, uh, Paris course uh, this season. Um, the, I believe that the junior world championships will be at the Paris course next year as well in the year before the Olympics. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't, don't think we've had, we'll have had any much visualization stuff going on. I mean, to be, to be honest, rowing is, uh, it's probably like a bit like a swimming pool, really. You know, the water's there, the boy line is there, you line up, they say attention, go, you know, we're just try and make the boats go quickly <laughs> fair enough can i ask um i mean we as rowers we've all had the kind of um the selection process you know even at, at club level there's some kind of process that involves you getting your you know that results in you getting your seat in the boat or not getting your seat in the, in the, in the boat um we know that um gb athletes follow a similar program we know that there are trials and tests and everything is stored we also know, having talked to you know, um, you know, people like Andy and, and and Jack, that sometimes the metrics might look the same. Sometimes a coach might have to go on intangibles in picking athlete A over athlete B or athlete B over athlete C. Could you talk us through what the selection process for a a Cox looks like, and 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 how you prepare for that, and then go through that process? Uh, yeah. So I mean the. The coxing select you. You start off at the November trials in Boston, Lincolnshire, um, and pretty much there just to to help out with and and facilitate the small boats trials for the rowers. But you, you sort of sign up and, and show your interest there, and then as you get through the season, there is um, some 
more trials. I think it's a, it's a, it's a little bit different in the senior national team for like the juniors and the 23s. There's like little sort of weekends or weeks where, you know, all of the athletes are bundled together and you mix and match in boats and stuff. And the coxes will get, uh, obviously heard by the athletes and the athletes will provide feedback to the coaches. Uh, the coxes have to take recordings of themselves and give those back to the coaches as well. Um, and it, it runs in a, a pretty similar way in the senior team as well. Um, so obviously there was a, you know, an, an extensive period of trialing this year for the coxing seat and it, it runs to a very similar tune really. There's, you know, periods where you'll be sat in the eight and the athletes will give feedback to the coaches and you have to give recordings to the coach and they listen through it. And, you know, so, so for example, we did, I, I handed in three recordings in a period of time where one was like a, just a practice training session. There was one where it was like a sort of low, low rate piece, just gauging how you sort of respond with that. And then the third one was like a flat out piece. And, you know, so you, you get a bit of a picture of how the Cox is responding to certain stimulus and, yeah, then it's up to the coaches to make a decision from there. So you you actually, I'm really intrigued by that. You actually record yourself, and then the coaches kind of review it and 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 look at the inputs that you're making. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. I, I'm. Um, I don't think we ever did that at Agecroft. To although to be fair with Maddie and Lucy, I think the coaches could hear them even when we were at opposite ends <laughs> of the reach. Uh, just to kind of come back to that, uh, you've you've been in and around for quite some time. Um, do you, you you've you've won the world championships? Are you kind of looking forward to being? And I guess you've you've already been part of a cycle, but but you're now kind of you're in the hot seat. It's a little bit like um, you you you're you've got the starting role, or, or, or does it actually now at the start of the season, does everything reset and you're fighting for your seat just as much as everybody else is in the boat? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm already sort of fully planning to sort of fight for my seat again. It, it does, it does start from square one. Um, and you know, all of the seats are now blank. Um, but the, the coaches understandably will take past performances into account uh, to an extent. But ultimately, you know, we, we have to start from square one and give everyone a, a fair crack of the whip to try and prove themselves again. So, yeah, it's, it's absolutely up to me to try and fight for my seat again, which I, okay. I agree with. I think that is the right way to be. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's nice to have won, but there are no guarantees. But, but that keeps everyone <laughs> progressing and, and reaching forward for the next step. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that um, I learned at being at Oxford Brooks, and obviously they're, you know, infamous for having just so many rowers and churning out so many eights. So naturally, it's I always, whenever I was sort of describing what it was like at Brooks to someone, I'd always use the analogy of it being a bit like shark teeth. You know, you you have to be really on your game and hold your seat down you know, every day, because if you're not on it, there is four other people who can do exactly the same job as you. So it's, you know, it's, um, it's something that I've learned over a good few years. That it's a very valuable lesson that I 
taken with me that, you know, even when you're riding high and, and things are going well, I think you just got to keep pushing on. Um, okay. I mean, to sort of like properly look to the future, um, I'm, I'm going to admit this is like a little bit of a thing that's been going around my head. Um, LA is going to be run over a 1500 meter course. And, and you guys have, you know, you, you've said a couple of times now that actually the plan is to get to 1500 meters in the absolute best position and then hang on for dear life. Do you think that, you know, are there already plans to change things for the slightly shorter course or is it not going to make much difference? Because I'm kind of aware that based on your times, you're going to be aiming for like a gold medal standard time, probably a good 10 seconds below four minutes. I mean, you, you, you're going to be around about 345, 355, depending on conditions. Is, is is that going to change how we train people in the eight, let's say, to people in the pair who are still going to be doing a five-minute race? Uh, I think well, there's, there's there's quite a few interesting things ar around LA. So obviously the LA Olympics will be over 1,500, but quite interesting. I, I mean, I could well be wrong. I think the World Championships from the year before will be over 2,000 metres. Okay. So it poses quite <laughs> a few problems because, first of all, you've got to qualify your boats for the Olympics over 2,000 metres. But then when you get to the Olympics, you're going to be racing over 1,500. I think it... I don't know. I'm, I'm just, you know, soldier on the ground. I don't know what's going to be set in terms of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, sort of the the training schedule and the training plan, but I would imagine that it will things won't change drastically. I think it will just be a case of pacing it harder. Trying you you know you might find that ratings come up slightly because people are, can maybe get away with being less efficient on a on a shorter race and and trying to just keep chucking power at it. Um, I, I, I can't see things changing massively. Um, I think the athletes are a little bit disappointed. sure I understand. Oh, sorry, that was my watch kicking off there. Um, I, I, I think people are maybe a little bit disappointed that it's not, it's not the same as you know, all of the other racing uh, in terms of the athletes. But um, I think you know, to be able to work with the IOC is, is probably a better thing than not at this stage. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think those will change. Fair enough. Okay. Now, Harry, th this is my, my one last question. I've kind of left it to the end in case you, you, you storm off in fury and disgust, but you, you appear to be, and, and this is a theory that we've had on the pod for a while. You appear to be a member of the last minority in the UK that it's legal to discriminate against the gingers. Now, <laughs> I I fundamentally believe that gingers are better at Olympic sports. It's not like a perfect thing, but if you look since about 1980 at the list of gold medal winners, 
the number of people who are ginger in there, or at the very least strawberry blonde, is significantly greater than the number of people who are ginger in the population. <laughs> is is this something that you've noticed in your life? It's just like, you know, kind of like just seeing as you've climbed up the ladder of elite Well, sports. I, I think it's, uh, it, it's a fact that we're a dying breed and I think we've just all ultimately understood that we're going to go out with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't really noticed it myself. Obviously, Will Satch springs to mind. Uh, oh yeah, Greg Rutherford from the the was he was he at Rio or he did definitely got gold at London. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's quite interesting actually. There's a. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any others kicking around. There's oh, Hodge was, there are, Hodge was there are a few coming blonde. through the under 23s as well actually that I've noticed. A few very good, good rowers coming through that are ginger. Lewin's theory is that because they have a harder time in the playground as they're growing up, it, make, <laughs> it makes them tougher. Um, and yeah, he, keeps, he keeps bringing this theory up, but he he hasn't actually done any scientific research on it, you know, to kind of back his theory. But it, well, it, I, I'd like back the trend on that. I, I I didn't have too much of a bad time in the playground. Not as much. Well, as good as anyone else, really. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was just that um, sort of confidence personified that managed to just get me away with it every time. Managed there to just go. avoid it and brush it off. Right. Yeah. Th 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 thank you. Thank you for not like just slamming the stop button on that one. But it, it is <laughs> it is something that genuinely interests me. That I you know um, yeah I I think it goes back quite a long way that there, there's just been this kind of hang on. He, he he's he, he's got very ruddy hair there there's there's a there's another one that's won a gold medal and and yeah like Aaron said this is very much a feeling rather than me actually going through the list of all the gold medalists and go yeah 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 <laughs> but I mean I mean okay to give you an example it's slightly distorted by the Chris Hoy effect yeah and and you know he, he he's on the kind of like blonde ginger co continuum, but I I just I just think it's like there's something there personally. I, well, I, I need more investigation. I think there's evidence to suggest that redheads uh, have a slightly higher pain threshold, and I I don't think I'm just saying that. I, I'm fairly sure I've read that somewhere. I don't know oh. how true that is. I don't. I I, I mean, I, yeah. Well, well I think you've I'm just thrown you've just thrown petrol on Lewin's fire there. There we go. There's, <laughs> there's something else to investigate. There's, yeah, so maybe it's a, a bit of bit of homework for you to go away from there, and yeah, maybe you can yeah. work something out. It, 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 it all started with a an offhand flipping comment from a, an old rowing friend of mine called James Knight, who who basically said every boat needs a ginger. <laughs> it's just like you're not going to win. You got to have a ginger, um, and and so yeah, I'm um, I I personally believe that one. I don't know whether I'm being a plonker or not, but I, I'd agree with it. <laughs> fair enough. Um, Aaron, 
Should, should, should we ask anything else of great deep meaningfulness? And I, 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 I think we've kept this um, world champion long enough. Harry, is is there any anything or anyone else that you would like to mention or or bring up before we let you go off and, and polish your gold medal um, <laughs> in the same way that perhaps um, Bilbo used to polish the ring, going "My precious, my precious." But I or, we already know now that you're 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 already looking ahead. Is is there anything else you'd like to mention, Harry? It's been a pleasure having you on. No, no, it's been a pleasure to be on as well. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Good stuff. Harry Not Brighton. many of I guess say that, but thank you. That's that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, thank you very much for coming on. Harry Brightmore, ladies and gentlemen, world champion Cox of the GB Men's Eight. It's been great. Cheers, guys. Thank you.